Hello, folks. Welcome back. I'm your host, Simon Ward, and this is the High Performance Human Triathlon Podcast. So as much as I'm passionate about finding ways to maintain my own health and performance into my 60s and beyond, I'm also passionate about sharing what I've learned so others can benefit. Over the years, I've been really, really lucky to meet some experts who've been super generous with their time and sharing their knowledge with me. And I feel it's only right that I do the same for the generation of athletes behind me and those who are still competing now. I mean, knowledge is just shared, right? Nobody owns it. It's passed down from generation to generation. So the stuff I'm learning now, people learned 20 years ago, and hopefully what I'm sharing now can be passed on by those of you who've taken custody of it for the next few years. So this week, it's actually a solo cast. So you've only got me for the next hour or so. It's been a while since I did one of these. Uh, This week, I have chosen to answer some awesome questions sent in by members of my tribe. So I'll be talking about the best investments for those new to triathlon, avoiding running injury, or how to avoid running injury, nutrition, lifestyle management, and strategies for improving your weakest discipline. Before that, though, if you haven't already signed up to my mailing list, you can get a lot more information from me by being part of that group. I typically email everybody a couple to three times a week with tips and hints on a whole range of subjects similar to what we'll be talking about today and more. So if you'd like to join, you can find a link in the show notes below or you can always email beth at thetriathloncoach.com. I also have a free gift for anybody who signs up. Okay, let's get cracking then with the first question. So our first question, which is a really good question, and one which I think a lot of people would have an answer for, and it would have been really interesting for those of you who are new to triathlon, and it is, what would be the most bang for your buck investment for somebody new to the sport of triathlon? So you're probably thinking it's got to be some equipment, maybe some Nike Vaporflies, maybe a new bike maybe a top-notch wetsuit. I actually think that it needs to be simpler than that. Now, I'm not saying that those are wrong. I'm just saying that I think you can get a bigger return on investing somewhere closer to home. And that closer to home is you. You and your body are the things that are going to benefit from everything you invest in. Now, if you invest in a bike, you're probably going to ride that bike a few hours a week. If you invest in a really expensive time trial bike, you're probably going to ride that a few times a month. So actually, the amount you're going to get out of it, despite the fact that it looks nice and you'll get lots of lovely compliments and you'll feel really fast when you're riding it, the amount of return you're going to get on it for the use that you have out of it will be quite small. But there's a lot of other things you could do better with your money. Now, um, which of these is relevant to you depends on what you're already doing. But here are some of the things that I would ask you to think of closely before you start going down the route of investing in um, fancy equipment. Okay. So the first thing is, and this is something I wish I'd had when I started all those years ago. I've written about this quite a few times now. Back in the late 80s and early 90s, there weren't any such thing as triathlon coaches, so everything was done by trial and error. 
You sort of trained like a swimmer, trained like a runner, trained like a cyclist. You tried to put all those together. And of course, you very quickly realized that there just weren't enough hours in the day and you got injured, which is what happened to me. So one, I think one of the best investments, and I see a lot of posts on forums about this, is like, should I get a coach? That's one of the things that you can invest in that will give you fantastic return. Now, before you get a coach, you need to work out what a coach is going to do for you. There's two ways you could look at this. You could find a great swim coach who helps you to get started with learning the basics of swimming right, and then to whom you return uh, maybe once a month, three or four times a year, just to provide some accountability. You could do the same with the run coach. Now, those are the running's the one where you most like to get injured. And I'll be answering another question about that later. Swimming is the one that's the most technically demanding and the one where most people could do with some help and, and definitely feel like they could do with some help. So I would think about having some help from a swim coach or a run coach. Now, a lot would depend on your budget. If you haven't got a lot in your budget, then maybe you want occasional help. If you can afford to have a coach that oversees everything you do, provides you with some guidance on the swimming and running, but also helps set your structure, then that will be even better. You could look to be paying somewhere from 100 up to 300 pounds, but don't be fooled into thinking that the coaches who are charging you 300 pounds are going to be the best coaches. They may not be. They may just have a high opinion of themselves. So what you need to do if you're going to take on a coach is do your due diligence, get some references, find out from other people um, who's been coached by them, how much experience have they got within the triathlon sport? Um, are they really good at theory or do they actually listen to what you're doing? You know, Have they had any success? They may be great at working with elite age groupers who want to go to the World Championships or go to Kona, but how are they working with people who are just starting the sport, who are learning to swim? You know, some there are some coaches who don't have the patience of working with novices. So you need to do your research first. And as Henry Ford said, you need to hire slowly and fire fast. Take your time. Interview the coaches. Anybody that's worth their salt will sit down and, and speak with you and they won't tell you all about themselves. They'll ask you questions about you. And that's another thing you should be looking out for. If you find a coach who's got a fancy website, when it tells you about them and the first three paragraphs tell you all about their athletic history and how good they were as a triathlete and how they've gone sub nine hour in an Ironman and they do 30 hours of training a week, you probably actually want to be avoiding that sort of person because it's all about them. The good coaches talk about what they've done as a coach first and at the bottom, there might be a couple of lines saying, oh, by the way, I do have some experience of completing triathlons. And I do think that's important. I think it's important for the coach to understand what you're going through and to know what the demands are on your life and, and the demands created by triathlon. So I, I do think in the main that the best coaches um, listen to you and have some experience of doing triathlon and the type of event you do. And you, if you look hard enough and long enough, you'll find the right person. So coaching. Now, a lot of people say you don't need a coach. I can do it myself. You will, Maybe if you're a busy person, you don't want to be spending an hour a day working out what training you should be doing. You actually want to be getting on with doing the training. And that's one advantage of having somebody who provides the structure for you. But equally, coaching isn't just providing you with a program. 
that's a program writing. And to be absolutely frank, you could get many hundreds of free programs off the internet. And if you followed those, as per the instructions, you do pretty well. So good coaching is about understanding you as a person, asking you questions, getting inside your head, understanding your life, understanding the challenges you have with making training, why you perhaps um, have some anxiety about getting in the pool, why you love cycling so much, why you can't run, why you miss sessions because you've got to pick up your kids at school or because you've got to cover for somebody at work. Okay, good coaches understand that. So again, that's part of your due diligence. So that, that will be one of my opportunities for investing is to have a coach okay because they would help you um to avoid some of the pitfalls that i uh, the the, uh, the craters if you like the the caverns that i fell into when i was starting out is sort of getting injured and getting ill and then taking time to recover and sort of like a stop start approach Okay, the next thing I would look at, if you've already got a coach or you're already uh, um, using the occasional services of a coach, is a mattress. Now, you're probably thinking, why would I invest in a mattress? Maybe you've already got a good bed. Maybe you've already got a good, comfortable mattress, and that's fine. You can ignore this bit. But let me tell you something else. Sleep is the rock star of recovery. So you have this brilliant coach who gives you an amazing training plan, but then you, um, you sleep five hours a night or you sleep eight hours a night, but actually when you're asleep, you're fidgeting a lot because your bed's uncomfortable, okay? Or your sleeping environment is noisy or too hot or too bright or whatever. So investing in the place where you sleep, making it dark, making it cool, making it quiet and making it comfortable. Okay, so if you have already invested in a good mattress, invest in the sleep environment. Sleep. 99.9% of the time, more sleep is generally better. When you get good sleep and good recovery, everything is better. Just about everything. I can't think of any circumstance, and I haven't been alerted to any circumstance yet, where more sleep is a bad thing, other than for somebody who has one of these illnesses um, or, or viruses where you have to sleep all the time. And even then, sleep's helping you recover. But there's not many people who have... Um, have these issues where they ha that they just sleep too much. So for most people, more sleep is better. So investing in your number one, number two, number three, number four, right up to number 10 method of recovery is going to give you massive return. Now, you might think, well, yeah, but how's that going to help me run hard? Well, when you're on top form because you've slept well, everything just feels easier. So I will be investing in your mattress or your sleeping environment. Are slightly off the wall, I know, but most people have most people overlook the benefits of investing in recovery. And no matter what you see in the adverts about this food or that particular massage gun or this particular set of um, inflatable um, sleeves for your legs helping with recovery, none of them comes anywhere close to being as good as sleep. Okay, now the next thing I'm going to recommend is a physio assessment. My physio, Louisa, has done some assessments on athletes that I coach. Some of them have traveled from the other end of the UK. To a person, every one of them has gone away feeling like it's been a fantastic investment for them. A good physio assessment will take about 90 minutes and will look at all sorts of things like they'll, they'll 
do a questionnaire first and it'll be a Q&A where they'll be talking about your injury history going right back to when you were children. Um, please don't think that when you fell over when you were young and you cracked your skull open, you had to have stitches and you bro- or you broke your jaw or whatever, that those things don't impact how you move as an adult. They do. Um, you might not notice as a child, but over the years, there's layers and layers of tightness that are built up one after the other, one fall off the bike, one trip over when you're running, um, one bang on the head when you're playing rugby. You know, all of those things, a back injury when you're lifting something in the garden, all of those things build up until when you're limping or when you're having problems with your hip, when you're in your 50s um, and it's causing you problems when you're running, it can all be attributed back to all of these sort of little things that have accumulated over the years. So they'll look at that. They'll look at operations you've had. They'll look at issues that you're having now um, because that'll give them clues for things to do when they do the next part, which is looking at your movement, looking at how mobile you are around your hips, around your hamstrings, around your ankles, around your thoracic spine and your upper back, what sort of rotation you have in your torso, whether there's a disassociation between your hips and your torso, what sort of tightness or flexibility you have around your hip flexors, whether you have any core control or core strength, what your balance is like. Again, lots of things that are overlooked, but which have a huge bearing on your athletic performance. Now, you could look to be, depending on where you are in the country and the calibre of the physio, you could look to be spending anywhere from 100 to 300 pounds for this. But what will happen is that this assessment will, will find out areas where you're weak, So you might find that you have very weak calves, which is not good if you're going to try and run 20 or 30 kilometers a week to do your first triathlon. It might find that you're very tight in the hips, might find that you you have too much tightness in your upper back, which is causing postural issues. All of these things could, could point to potential for injury. So we're identifying areas where you're likely to get injured. And once they've been identified, then it's possible to create a stretching and mobility and strength program to work on these areas so that you become a little bit more robust. Because when you're doing however many hours of training you're going to do for your triathlon, if you don't have a robust body, then there's a good chance that you're going to get a niggle or an injury at some point, and then your consistency is going to be interrupted. So there's three main things there, all of which you probably weren't expecting. Get get a coach or some occasional coaching. Get a mattress or invest in a sleep, your sleep environment. Going back to the mattress thing, by the way, um, I have a client who spent over five grand on his mattress and you're probably going, whoa, five grand on a mattress. Well, let me, let me, um, give you a few facts here. Healthy adults need between seven and nine hours of sleep every night. So that's one third of your day. If you get in the middle there, eight hours, one third of your day. Sleep, as I've already said, is the rock star of recovery. One to 10 and probably beyond. Nothing else comes close and it's free. You just have to find the right environment. If I said five grand on a new bike, now actually, for, if you go around the transition area, a lot of triathlons, five grand is fairly average for a bike for a lot of people. Maybe not for a novice, but one or two grand, not much. And yet people will balk at spending one or two grand on a mattress where they're going to spend a third of their life and probably 
not blink twice about spending that amount of money on a bike that they're going to ride four or five hours a week. Now you tell me what the logic is in that, because I don't see it. For me, a mattress improves everything of your sleep, of your life, of your long-term health and your triathlon performance. So coach or coaching, mattress, physio assessment. Those are things that are going to give you massive returns on your investment. Not obvious, but from my experience, both personal and as a coach, the best. Now, if I was going to buy some equipment for training, if you haven't got a bike already, then clearly, if you want to do triathlon, you need to invest in a bike. It's not necessary to spend five grand on the top of the range triathlon bike. Uh, if you've been to some of the small novice triathlons, you've seen probably people riding around on mountain bikes or hybrids, not an electric bike where they're not, they're not allowed yet, but certainly a mountain bike, a hybrid, a gravel bike, maybe a commuting bike and a fancy triathlon bike. So there's a whole range there. Um, if you're limited for budget, I'd be looking at a bike that enables you to do all of the riding you need to do. So if you have to ride to work, if you want to do races, if you want to go out with your friends at the weekend, you need to try and find a bike that enables you to do all that. So maybe investing in a, a sleek triathlon bike uh, might be a little uncomfortable going to the shops and might be a little awkward commuting into and out of the city every morning to go to work. Um, so, so think about that. If you've already got a bike, then... The next best thing I would recommend for training is probably a heart rate monitor. Um, power meters are just usable on the bike. A heart rate monitor, you can use it for um, resting heart rate when you're not training. You can Some of them now will measure, help you with the use of, um, with the aid of an app as well to measure your heart rate variability. Um, you can definitely measure your workload and work intensity for cycling and running for definite. Uh, you can also use them in the pool, although they're a little bit more tricky to get in place and to keep them in place when you're horizontal and you've got the, the water um, around your torso. But you can also use them in the pool. Uh, and obviously, that heart rate monitor will be allied to a sports watch. So the most popular are Garmin and Sunto. <laughs> Funnily enough, if, if you go on to any of the triathlon forums, probably there's some of the biggest conversations are about which brand of watch and whether you should get this. Honestly the watch isn't going to help you go any faster. You need to collect a little bit of data. Um, if you just want a heart rate monitor, then you can invest in something that's probably going to cost you around £100. Um, if you want to spend £700 to get all the data in the world that NASA can use, then go right ahead, but it's not necessary. But that would also be, in terms of return on investment, um, a heart rate monitor or something that measures it and collects the data for you and enables you to load it up to Garmin Connect or Strava or to Training Peaks would be a good return as long as you're using that data. And that's where a coach comes in. Okay. Um, if you want to write to me and ask me why I haven't recommended the new uh, brand of wetsuit or why I don't think vapor flies are any good, they've got limited, they've got limited use during the week. The application's very specific. Um, Often the return for the money is, you know, very limited. Um, so there's other areas where you can spend your time and money uh, with far greater return on your investment. So uh, for the person who asked that question, I hope it answers it. Um, if you're a novice to the sport and you have some money to spend and uh, you're looking to spend it on triathlon, then I hope that helps. Um, 
if there are any questions arising from this answer, please feel free to drop me an email and I'll go into um, a deeper conversation with you about some more specifics. But um, those are my answers on that one. So probably not what you're expecting, but that's what you're getting. Okay, so the next question was another equally great question and uh, something I think plagues most endurance athletes, not just triathletes, but endurance athletes. So this question says, please, can you advise on run volume for an injury-prone runner? How to get faster without risking injury? Well, right at the very beginning of, of my podcast series, almost five years ago, I did a podcast with a lady, a physiotherapist who runs the clinic where I go, uh, Coach House Sports Physio Clinic in Leeds. Um, I'll put a link to that in the show notes because that's also where Louisa hangs out, the White Witch. And so in a previous question I answered about um, getting a physio assessment, that's where they do them. So if, if any of you are in that area or want to travel, you can get that. But in this podcast, Alison and I were talking about running injuries and she gave me this statistic, which was um, which came about from her assessing the data of all the patients they'd seen through the clinic um, and particularly triathletes and um, how their injuries uh, occurred and what type of injuries they were. And she thinks that, and, and is fairly qualified uh, information, is that 70 to 80% of triathlon injuries are run-related. So running for triathletes is high risk. You're way more likely to get injured there, four times more likely to get injured there than you are in any of the other two sports. Now, that doesn't mean you can't get injured in the pool. I've had a bad shoulder, which has kept me out of the pool for a few weeks. I've had a bad wrist uh, from colliding with somebody in the pool. One of the guys I swim with got a bad elbow from doing the same when they were both doing butterfly coming opposite directions and sort of Ijadi's elbow. Um, I ended up having a knee operation uh, for some torn cartilage after my foot slipped while I was doing a tumble turn in the pool. So swimming's not without its risk. I've also had a, a head-on collision with somebody who was swimming up the lane the wrong way. And I, I just come out of a turn. I was just coming up. I had my head down and we, uh, we had a head-on collision. Fortunately, there was no blood, but it did leave me with a, a, a bit of a bruise and him with a bit of a bruise on the top of the head. So swimming's not without its risk. And obviously cycling, um, you don't tend to get many chronic injuries from cycling, but, uh, um, if you're watching the video of this, I've got a, a, a nasty little bump on my shoulder from a broken collarbone, which was a bike crash. Um, so mo most of the injuries you get from cycling are definitely going to be impact injuries when you fall off. Um, so, yeah, but, but the majority of injuries in triathlon are related to the run. And as I said, Alison does a questionnaire when people come in, uh, quite, a, quite a comprehensive questionnaire, as do all the physios. And the three main reasons why triathletes get injured and probably runners as well is uh, that they have poor technique. Um, that could be because um, they're too heavy. Uh, a lot of it is due to posture and mobility, which is why that um, physio assessment I mentioned in the previous question is really important. Um, most people think that running is something that is natural. And of course, when you if you watch children running around the park or when they're playing football, they do run very naturally. But of course, as adults, we get lots of things that interfere in that. So we're sitting down a lot. We've got poor posture. We inherit bed and we develop some bad habits, which then tightens up our hips and our ankles and our shoulders. And so then we, we have poor technique. So poor technique is one. Lack of strength. 
Um, again, mostly to do with a sedentary lifestyle. Um, we're not out working in the fields. We're not out walking much these days. We're sitting in the chair. We're driving. We're sitting down at night. So we've got lack of strength around the glutes and around the ankles. And so that lack of strength means that we're not able to maintain a good technique when we get tired. And therefore, our running gait alters as we get tired. And that then develop some little niggles and then we ignore those because they think we think they'll go away with a couple of days rest and we end up with an injury so poor technique and lack of strength and the third one's inappropriate training so uh doing too much too soon so building up the volume too quickly um doing too much high intensity too many drastic changes so you, you what you often see is um a big spike in physio visits around march or april when people go from all the long slow distance running that they've been doing in the winter to the faster track stuff and faster intervals that they want to do for the race season and so the body's not used to that change in intensity and pace and sort of different running style and so you pick up an injury from that and the majority of these are below the knee so you'll get calf strains you'll get calf tears, you'll get Achilles tendonitis. Um, you might get some plantar fascia in your foot or you might get a stress fracture in your lower leg or a stress fracture or a stress response, which is the early stage of stress fracture uh, in your lower leg or in your foot. Okay. But what you've probably realized is when you get an injury, particularly below the knee um, that's related to running, you can't do any running. It's painful to land on it and push off. So you can't run. So your running is basically stopped. Whereas if you've got a tight knee or um, you can still ride your bike, if you've got a sore shoulder, you can probably still swim uh, and you can still do all those others. So um, when you get a running injury, that really curtails all running. Okay. So that's just a little bit of a background to running injuries. So, um, I would say that most people have the potential to get injured. And if you're trying to get faster, there's always going to be a risk. So what can you do to minimize that risk? Well, I think you should, um, uh, for the listener and anybody else who's in this situation, I think you need to ask yourself some questions first. So um, what injuries are you typically getting? I would suggest that for triathlon, most people are not going to get a sudden calf tear. So it's not like um, it's not like a hundred meter sprinter who is accelerating out of the blocks, picking up to full speed, or they're slowing down because often that's that acceleration deceleration that causes those muscle pulls, and they suddenly get a tear in the hamstring, which is part of the deceleration, or they get a tear in the calf, um, or you, you see that with the footballers and rugby players as well because they're sprinting or they're changing direction quickly. So it's it's not often that. Um, triathletes and runners are getting a muscle pull. Generally, these are chronic injuries that are built up over time from, um, from some of the things that I mentioned earlier, poor technique, lack of strength and inappropriate training. And by the way, inappropriate training can also include not getting enough time off from running, just, just doing too much. So it might not be too hard. You might just have been running for too long without a, a recovery week or a few days rest. So you ask yourself, um, what injuries you're typically getting? They're probably the same ones. For me, when I was getting injured, it was typically calf or Achilles. Um, how do the injuries manifest themselves? So I've just talked about that. Is it a muscle pull or is it just a, a niggle that develops over time until it becomes a pain and then it becomes an injury? And I think you should also ask yourself, what volume can you do 
regularly without getting injured. So if you keep a training diary, you'll be able to go back and see, right, well, you used to run for two hours a week. So that's maybe three times 40 minute sessions and you didn't get injured. But if you tried to push up to three hours a week, then after a couple of weeks, you did get injured. So clearly somewhere between two hours and three hours, there's a point where it's too much for your body. So now you've got some information. I would hope at some point when you've got this injury that you've been to see the physio and the physio's done that sort of assessment that we talked about at the beginning. Oh, and by the way, if you haven't had that physio assessment at the beginning, then you're probably going to get one now, but except it's got an injury associated with it and there's a bit more expense because you're probably going to have to go back for some treatment and this frustration as well. So if you have the physio assessment at the beginning and do the injury prevention work, often you can avoid any of the situations like this where you're getting injured and you're in pain and you're, and you're frustrated. So um, that's another reason why that physio assessment is such a good investment um, and return on that investment. So you, you have some physio treatment. You do your exercises. You work on your mobility. You work on your strength. You do some technique work to try and help. Um, improving your strength and mobility might help with your technique as well, but that's where you need to go and get a run coach. So again, having a coach might have helped you avoid doing too much training, might have included having a bit more um, rest time and might have had a bit more attention to strength work and technique. So again, that's why in having a coach is such a great investment. But back to this problem, I also think that one of the reasons, particularly why triathletes get injured, is, is going back to inappropriate training. is just a desire to get, to, to get faster too quickly. This is an endurance sport. Things take time. The body has to adapt. You can't hack the body. I know there's lots of people who tell you that you can try this hack to get faster or that one. But in reality, the body absorbs stuff at its own rate. And it's different for everybody. And a lot of it will depend on all the other stuff you do in your life. But the body absorbs stuff at its own rate. And it takes time. Endurance races require patience. And so does your training. So if you can run for two hours a week without getting injured and you want to increase your volume to three hours a week, take a year to do that. I know people talk about the 10% rule, but even sometimes that's too much. You know, add a little bit more in one week and then go back to two hours, then do it again, then give yourself a bit more exposure. If you're getting injured because you're running fast, don't go from doing no track running to doing 10 times 400 at 10K pace. Maybe just add a faster 400 when you're out for one of your runs and then maybe add a couple of faster 400s and then three or four. But you build that up over a period of weeks. Okay, so be very slow and patient about introducing faster stuff or longer stuff and about increasing the running volume. Now, this is almost like taking the the tortoise approach, a very slow, gradual improvement over time. If you want to take the approach of the hare, going at it full tilt and then getting injured and stopping again, then going full tilt and getting injured, you can do. The likelihood is that after a year, you're going to be behind the tortoise and you've had a lot more frustration. So. Think about that, please, when it comes to planning out your running. 
I also think that one uh, one thing triathletes often don't consider is that maybe they can run okay, but maybe it's the effort they're putting into the swimming and the biking beforehand, which is leading to them running uh, below what they think is optimal. So also think about how you might be able to make yourself a faster runner by, or certainly a faster running triathlon by being uh, smarter with your swim and your bike training and you're smarter and smarter about your swim and your bike racing. Now, if you were waiting for me to tell you how much volume for an injury prone runner, that is very, very individual. Some people can run for four or five hours a week and not get injured. For others, they tend to get injured in the first few kilometers of their one run a week. So I can't give you that. What I've given you is a template for finding your own path and for thinking about the long term rather than the short term. Okay, great question though. Thanks for asking that one. I'm sure that um, just about every listener's had that problem from time to time. Okay, let's move on to question three. So this one concerns nutrition. And the listener has asked a fairly general question, which means I'm going to give it a fairly general answer. I'm, I'm going to try not to make it too long-winded or complicated. So the question really just says, please, can you give me some nutrition guidance for life as well as for events? So that's really open-ended, isn't it? So let me start with a few basic principles. Number one, there are 365 days in most years. And there are a handful of race days. So what you do on those 365 days or those 365 days is way more important to your health and to your fitness and your recovery and everything else than the five days when you're racing. So I'm going to focus mostly on what you do on those 360 odd days in a year. So I'm pretty agnostic about what approach you take. I don't mind if you're a vegan. I don't mind if you're a carnivore. I don't mind if you land somewhere in between those. Um, if you have to follow a keto diet, then I understand. Um, there are many reasons why people try keto or ancestral or paleo. Um, most of these are, are around weight loss because they've seen that people lose a lot of weight on keto very quickly. And that is true. Um, some people I appreciate uh, following a keto diet for the reasons that it was originally intended, which is to um, help with brain injuries and particularly epilepsy. But that's that's the that was the basis of the keto diet. Um, it just so happened that people observed that when when um, these patients were following the keto diet, they also lost a lot of weight and, and actually a lot of body fat very quickly. And so then also people thought, oh, hold on a minute, we might have something here. There's a commercial opportunity. I actually think that keto and triathlon don't go together very well in the long term. But that's a debate for another time. If you want to take issue with me of that, email me, please. If you tell me that you're a triathlete and you're following a keto diet and you've done so successfully for five years, fantastic. I have got no argument with that. I'd also like to hear from the people for whom it was an, a mitigated disaster because you don't generally hear from them. You, you, you hear from them to start with like, yeah, this is great. I've lost loads of weight. And then when they completely implode and they lose all the energy and yeah, and they have their cravings, um, you don't hear from them. So um, ketone triathlons 
another debate, probably for somebody who's an expert on the keto diet. But for now, um, let's move off that. What I would say is that whatever approach you take, the main goal is for you to be able to train, refuel, and recover. That's why day-to-day nutrition is important. So I would implore you to find an approach that is sustainable in the long term, not for three months or six months, but for three years or six years or for the rest of your life. And that it fits your values. So if you want to protect all the animals in the world and you have a philosophical argument about eating fish or meat or dairy products, then that's fine. I'm happy with that. Um, You need to find something that's sustainable. I think the biggest issue I see with uh, people who've decided to go from eating fish and meat and dairy to uh, a vegetarian or or, um, a vegan approach is that they don't do the research. Now, I did do a podcast with Jack and Louisa, my physio. She comes up quite a lot. And Jack and Kirsten, um, Jack, I used to, Jack Maitland, they used to coach with Kirsten's his wife, the yoga teacher, who's also been on a podcast. And Louisa, where we talked about the vegan approach, and, and Louisa made a big point here uh, about this, that you need to do your research first because the biggest problem with a vegan approach is making sure you get adequate quantities and sources of quality protein. Now, if you've just decided on Monday morning that you are going to be a vegan and you've got no clue about where alternative sources of protein come from, you might find yourself struggling after a few weeks. You also need some good recipes because things can become very samey if you only have a limited number of products that you can buy and eat. So do your research. But on that point of protein, um, that often gets overlooked. I think we probably don't eat enough protein. Um, it's around one and a half to two grams per person per kilo of body weight. So I'm 80 kilos at the moment. That would mean I'm looking for somewhere between 120 to 160 grams a day. If you do eat meat, a chicken breast will probably give you about 25 to 30 grams of protein. So that's at least five chicken breasts a day. If you're only eating one a day, where's the rest of your protein coming from? And are you balancing it out through the day, breakfast, lunch? dinner or breakfast, dinner, tea, as we talk about in Yorkshire. So it's important to understand where you're getting quality protein from, and it needs to be quality protein. Um, And it should be balanced in macros. So one of the things that I followed a couple of years ago was a low-carb diet. Keto is very low-carb. It's less than 5% of carbs every day. That's not a lot. And when you think that there's incidental carbs in a lot of vegetables, most people probably consume that anyway without eating any obvious carbs. So definitely no bread, no potatoes, um, no beans, none of that other stuff. No pasta, no rice. But what I found was that actually, again, whilst it was okay in the short term, when I upped the training volume and or intensity, um, it was more difficult to refuel and a low a low carb approach um, was difficult for me a lot of the time. Now, if I'm not training much and I'm eating two meals a day, I can do a low carb approach. But if I'm doing 15 or 20 hours of, of training, as I have been in the last few weeks when I've been training for a big uh, gravel race, um, you need to get the carbohydrates in. Okay, now, if you've been out on a five-hour ride, 
and you're fueled with um, sports nutrition on that five-hour ride, and then you get back and you know you need um, big calories, that's fine. But once you've topped up your energy system with your carbohydrates, you don't need to keep doing that throughout the day. So you've got to be you've got to be mindful about what you're eating and calculate what your numbers are. I think that's really important. I think a lot of people don't do that. They just think, right, well, I've been on a big ride, so I can eat with impunity now, whatever I like. And of course, as, as Phil Maffetone talks about, we, we have a lot of triathletes and endurance athletes that are carrying a fair amount of body fat because they just um, they have this compensatory eating. But again, that's another podcast. For now, what I would say is you just need to balance out your micros, uh, your macros, get plenty of protein, get your carbohydrates, but just enough to refuel. Get your fats, good sources of fat from either your food or from oils. And make sure you're getting your vitamins and minerals with a varied diet. And for those of you eating lots of meat, please don't think that there aren't any vitamins and minerals in there and they've all got to come from vegetables. You can do really well with liver and with high quality grass fed beef and oily fish. So, you know, it doesn't have to be all from the vegetable sources. Another general approach is to avoid refined sugars and processed foods. So there's refined sugars in a lot of stuff. In fact, most foods that you get that come in a tin, in a packet, in a as a pre-made meal, in a bag, in a box delivered, as in takeaway, have generally got additives and there will be quite a bit of sugar in there. Um, have a look at things like granola and muesli that you think is nice and healthy. You'd be surprised about how much sugar in there um, there is. So have a look at those. Um, certainly um, refined sugars in, in the form of the obvious ones. So actually sugar in your tea and coffee, chocolate, unless it's 80% dark chocolate. So milk chocolate and any sorts of sweets, um, candy. Cookies and biscuits. I say cookies because we have some American listeners, so they'll know what I mean. If you're in the UK, biscuits. All right, your favorite hobnobs, bourbons, custard creams, all those things that you like dipping in your tea, digestives even, Jaffa cakes. Cakes, pastries, cereals that you have for your breakfast. Most of those are laden with sugar. And then ready meals, even bread. Mass-produced bread has sugar in it. So you want to check that. Get away from that refined sugar. Processed foods. Again, things that come out of the factory, not fresh. You try and avoid those as much as possible. Definitely takeaway meals. If you're going out to restaurants, I generally have steak or fish and seasonal vegetables. Okay, then you can be certain that there's not a great deal added to it. If you're getting takeaways, and you don't know the provenance of your food, there's a good chance there's, there's some additives in there. So you're trying to re adjure, uh, avoid refined sugars and processed foods because those are the things that are causing spikes in your insulin, changes to your blood sugar, and possibly um, type 2 diabetes in the long term. So just because you're a triathlete or a runner or a cyclist, you're not immune from these types of metabolic diseases, particularly if you've got a, a less than perfect diet. And you might be able to run away from a bad diet when you're in your 20s, but when you're in your 30s and 40s, you're running slower and the diet's catching you up. And by the time you're in your 50s, man, it's on top of you. So you've got things that are going on in your body and you've got that bit of belly fat, which has been caused by that 
sedentary lifestyle and and that sort of um, less than diligent attention to your diet. So avoiding refined sugars and processed foods is important. Now, I would say that that also, if you're doing lots of training, sometimes you do need to get the calories in. So I'm I'm not completely unraveling everything I've just said, but sometimes you need to get some calorie-dense food in. You know, most of the time I'm, I'm recommending you to spend looking for nutrient dense foods, but sometimes you just can't get enough calories in by eating salads all the time. So you have to get in some higher calorie foods. Now you can do that by having some more oils. Avocados is great. Um, olives are great for extra calories. You could have a bit more uh, yogurt and, and fruit if you want. Stick some peanut butter in there as a, a reasonably sweet if, you, if you're craving some sweet stuff, it's a reasonably sweet uh, dessert or snack you can have, but you can put the calories in. Um, getting some quality ice cream. Uh, occasionally, maybe have some chocolate, um, certainly the dark chocolate, but, but be careful about when you have that because if you're eating it too late, the caffeine may interfere with your sleep. So that's another thing. Um, but I would say take a 90 or an, an, um, a 90-10 approach to your nutrition. So if you're eating... According to the um, description I've just given you in the last few minutes, if you're eating that 90% of the time, you can afford to have a pizza once a week. You can afford to have a couple of beers. You can afford to have a takeaway. You can afford to go to the fish and chip shop. Um, It doesn't matter for a couple of meals, but it's when that's the norm. So don't be too monastic. Food is there to be enjoyed. We're actually talking about food here. We're not talking about nutrients, vitamins, and minerals. We're not talking about um, macros and micros. We're talking about food and meals, and that's a social thing too. So don't be too monastic. Remember to enjoy it. If you can make time to plan what meals you want and to shop for that and to prepare that. So that's one of the biggest reasons why people are going for ready prepared meals is they just don't leave themselves enough time. So, you know, eating well isn't just about having the right food in the house, which is important and and not having the other, the bad food in the house, but it's about making time to prepare those meals. Because if you do that with your family, if you do it with your children, or if you have friends around, it's a very social occasion and that creates enjoyment. And so I'd really like you to not just be eating food, but to enjoy the taste of that food as well. And when you're eating really good nutrient dense food, it tastes fantastic. And if you do that for a few weeks, you won't want to eat those refined sugars and processed foods anymore anyway. One other thing, if you do start getting food cravings, sometimes this is just a sign from your body that you're not getting enough in. So you might want to think about upping your nutrition and particularly your protein. That really helps. Okay, so that's that's my day-to-day guidance. It's not super specific, but there's some general rules there. Uh, as with the other questions, if you've got a question, feel free to email me. Um, do it via Beth at the triathloncoach.com and she'll send it on to me and maybe we can have a call or maybe I can do a, another podcast question. Uh, when it comes to events, uh, there are some things that you should know. The first is that for every event, your requirements will change. Um, if the race is longer, if it's going to be in different climactic conditions, so if um, your requirements for the main constituents of race day nutrition, which are water, electrolytes, carbohydrates, those will change if it's hot or if it's cold. They will change if your race is longer or shorter. They'll change if the race is more intense or less intense. 
they'll also probably change if the terrain is different. So uh, if it's a flat course where your effort level is more um, constant versus where it's a hilly course where it's up and down, they will change as well. So if you found a nutrition uh, plan that works for one race and you felt great, please don't be going into your next event thinking, that's fine, I can do exactly the same because chances are you can't. So you, you have to be flexible with this. So on those three things I mentioned, water. So how much fluid you need to consume per hour, how what, what quantity of electrolytes you consume, and that will depend on how much salt you sweat out. So some people are heavy salt sweaters and some people aren't. Um, and how many carbohydrates you're going to burn through. Um, it's important that you know your individual numbers. It doesn't matter what other people are doing or what your best mate, your best mate who you train with all the time and who's going to finish in the same, roughly the same time as you and go at roughly the same speed. You, you know, you probably got different requirements to him or her. So the best thing is to get this checked out. Now, I'm not an expert on these numbers, I, but I know the experts. Um, I did a podcast with Precision Hydration recently. Andy Blow, who runs the company, and Chris and the team there are fantastic. And they offer a free service where you can have a video call with one of their members of staff on the sports scientists, and they will talk you through, having asked you a few questions, they'll talk you through your basic requirements and help you to know your own numbers. So rather than me making a mess of telling you what that is, I would strongly suggest that you look for the link in the show notes and maybe listen to the podcast with Andy where we talk about that. And then you give them a call and work that out yourself. Okay, another great question. Thanks for asking that one. A couple more left to do. Let's move on to the next one. All right, I love this question. I've been doing so much on this stuff recently. And in fact, we're actually giving away in our, uh, when you sign up for our mailing list, we're giving away a two-page document that talks about this. So if you're not on my mailing list yet, um, please join and then you can get this document. Uh, if you are on the mailing list, send an email to beth at the triathloncoach.com and we can send you some stuff out which talks about this in more detail. So the question is, managing life, work and training is hard. What tips do you have to succeed in all aspects if that's even possible? So I have this concept of the sweet spot. When I analyze the training of the triathletes that are in my care and triathletes who have been in my care and I've worked with for the last 25 years, if I go back through their training diaries, a pattern emerges. Everybody has a pattern. And that pattern is an average hour of training. So if I take, I, I was looking at somebody uh, recently and the training they did over the last five years. Now, remember the last five years have been interrupted by COVID. They've been interrupted by a lot of time of working from home. They've been interrupted by a time when exercise was limited. Pool access was uh, denied for certain periods of time. And yet still, this average number is fairly consistent. So you take a whole year, you have a bit of downtime after your final race, maybe a month where you're just ticking over, then you pick up the training a bit, 
and then it goes up and down in the in the sort of like three or four weekly cycles and then it ramps up in the summer when the weather's better and when everybody's more motivated and when they've got the races coming up and then it drops off again in between races and picks up so everybody has this pattern and even if somebody's training for sprint event one year and ironman the next year even over time you find that there is a sweet spot of training and average training hours that that person can do now that that training number of training hours depends on a whole lot of things so what your job is and how much time you spend engaged in your job each week how much commuting you do your access to facilities um other commitments you have in your life bringing up children ferrying children around looking after elderly parents okay whether your partner's involved in the sport or not, what sort of social circles you keep. Okay, all of these things dictate how much time you have available to commit to training on a regular basis. And it will go up and down. It's fluid. But most people have a sweet spot. Now, for me, the sweet spot is a volume of training that allows you to improve your fitness. Now, remember, you're not professional athletes. You get some books and um, systems that show you how to improve your fitness year on year. And that's great if you're starting out at the age of 17 as a, a triathlete, just turning professional, coming out of an academy and then working their way up to the point where they are going to be competing for an Olympic gold medal in their late 20s. And yes, you would see an increase in volume year on year, but that's not the majority of people listening to this podcast. Most people listening to this podcast are like me or anybody else, they've got all of those considerations, work, family, et cetera, et cetera. So, but you find a, a level of, you find a level of training that enables you to achieve your athletic goals. Okay. I won't say improve fitness. It'll improve over the year, then it'll drop back and you'll probably reach the same level each time. It needs to be sustainable. You as an individual have a family. So you need to do all the things that families do. You need to bring your children up. You need to have good relationships with your partner, with your parents. You need to sleep a certain amount of hours each night. We've talked about that already in an earlier question. You need to go to work and there are certain requirements for you at work, like turning up on time, turning up able to do your job. Um, you probably have a social life as well. You have friends and social circles that you mix in that you don't want to let down. And you also want to be able to have enough energy at the end of the day in case it's an emergency. What happens if you get back from training and one of your kids slips over, twists their ankle, and you have to take them to the hospital? You don't want to be flat out on the couch unconscious because you've had a hard day and, you, and you've just got no more energy left. You need to be able to do that. And maybe you have to drive through the night to go and visit some elderly parents because they're ill. And there's nobody to take care of them. You know, you need to be able to do that. So there's a sustainability issue as well in this sweet spot. And then the third thing is your health. Okay. Because if you get injured because you've done too much training or you're not recovering enough, or you get ill because your immune system's suppressed because there's too much stress in your life and you're not sleeping, then you're not doing any training either. Now, at times, each of the requirements for each of these three um, areas will change. Sometimes you'll be doing more training because you'll be training for a race. Um, sometimes you'll have to work a bit more. Sometimes you'll have more social commitments. Other times you'll maybe need to be engaged more in your family. 
And at other times you might be managing your health and more mindful of that. But if you take all of these three areas, create a circle out of them, the area where they overlap is the bit in the middle called the sweet spot. And that is where you want to try and be all the time. Now, being in this sweet spot is like, I can give you two analogies. Once those little games you got as a kid where you had like a little a little maze, a little circular maze in a handheld um, piece of plastic, and you had to get all of the ball bearings into the middle of the maze. You remember those? And you'd get one in, but then in trying to get the others in, one would fall out. And eventually you'd get them all in there, but then if you got a bit shaky in the hands, it'd all fall out again. Okay, so that's what happens. You can get things into the sweet spot for a certain period of time. Or it's like standing on one leg and being balanced. You can be there for a while, but then you'll lose your balance and you'll fall over. The key point here is that while all of these things are changing and your sweet spot is is fluid, is to be mindful of where you are. If you're doing too much training, it's important to be mindful of the effect that's having on your co-workers or on your family and on your sleep. If you're doing too much entertaining, it's important to have a, a think about how that's affecting your health or your fitness or your family or your work. If you're ill, it's important to be mindful about what impact that's having on your training or on your work, or on your family. OK, so you've got to be mindful in all these situations about the impact it's having on the others and then make adjustments so you can get back into the sweet spot as soon as possible. So I think that um, the times when you're training for races, um, you'll need longer if you're training for a bigger event like an Ironman. Um, for a sprint distance event, you probably need a short amount of time to get into peak fitness. So for the rest of the year, you can periodize that training on a, an annual cycle so that you're just doing what my friend calls grazing training, just doing enough to maintain your fitness. Just doing enough so you're in the ready state so you can pick it up when required. Okay, and that'll ebb and flow throughout the year. It's certainly not possible for the majority of recreational triathletes who've got families and jobs to maintain high volumes of training. I do know some people are able to do this. Most of the time, they're leading very quiet lives. They've got no children. They've got a job where they're not really that bothered about promotion or or getting a bigger salary they're just rolling over so they can do going to work getting on with the job coming home so they can get on with the training and they've got a partner who's understanding or engaged in it as well okay the majority of those people um but for most people doing high volumes year round is just um it's unsustainable it's not necessary and it's certainly not healthy in the long run the world health organization says Four to five times 45 minutes at the most of exercise each week. Right? As triathletes, we normalize 10 hours a week or eight hours. As, you know, that's fine. I do the average. So if I'm doing six hours a week, I'm being lazy. No, you're not. That's absolutely fine. Six hours will keep you really fit and healthy and you can keep it going week after week after week. So try not to normalize these high things. That is how you manage it. It's, it's actually, if you think about it, it's not too difficult. You need to find your own sweet spot. I think part of the problem is that everybody compares what they're doing to what other people are doing. And that can have a negative impact on you. On you, And actually, it can have a negative impact on your fitness if you think you're doing less than other people. But the truth is that most of those people 
either have very simple lives or it's unsustainable. You, and, and, you know, when they put these things on Instagram or Facebook, what they're doing is showing you the hero session. They don't show you the monotony. The other, the other thing is that the people I know that are able to do high volumes are able to work that training in with their, with their daily life. So let's say somebody cycles to work half an hour every day. Right? That's five days a week. That's five hours of cycling. You don't need to do much more. Maybe they go running with their dog or maybe they're able to run into work. Okay, so that's, that, that's one way of doing it. You've got to get to work. So if you can run in, then that, that counts as training, right? It doesn't have to be going out to the running club to do it. Uh, maybe they spend time out running with the dog. Um, so they're going to be walking or running the dog anyway. So why not get it in as training? It's not, it's not a perfectly structured session, but if you're doing it regularly, you'll get pretty fit. So that is one way in which people manage those high volumes. But if you're commuting and, and what have you, it's, it's just really difficult. So um, that's how I do it. Find your sweet spot. Um, make sure you, you're hitting the performance, sustainability and health goals and just be mindful that things change and be mindful of when they are changing so you can try and get back into the, the sweet spot as soon as possible. All right. Great question again. Hope that one helped. I really love that one. Okay, on to the final question of the day then. So this is one that comes up regularly, definitely among the athletes that I work with. Should I concentrate more on my weakest discipline, and in brackets it says swimming, than the others? Right, great question. And I would say that being a significantly weakest discipline uh, is probably true for at least 50% of the triathlon population. So, again, it's always difficult to give a hard and fast answer to this without knowing the specific circumstances of the person asking the question or the person um, in question. As a coach, normally I would, uh, if this was an athlete I was working with, I'd sit down and I'd do a comprehensive question and answer session and get a little bit more data. So I have to make a few assumptions here. So my first assumption would be, what time of the year is it? If it's October and it's the end of the triathlon season, then I would say that it's really important or a really good idea to up the volume because you can do that without risking those other two disciplines of cycling and running. If this question's being asked in May or June, as you're coming up to the race season, then I would say that you probably have to stick with what you're doing. The approach to all three sports is balanced. So it's probably 25 to 30% of your time spent in the water. And you wait until the winter to work on your weakness. So that's that's one thing is what time of year is it? But but definitely you can work on um, work on that more during the winter, and just have a maintenance load on the other two. Um, some another approach that some coaches like to take is they do a a four week cycle where one week is focused heavily on swimming. Um, with maintenance loads for cycling and running. Then the next week is focused on cycling with a maintenance of swimming and running. And the final week is running with a maintenance of swimming and biking. Okay, so that's one approach. 
but that doesn't give her a regular attention to the weakest discipline. And the second question is, um, is this discipline considerably weaker than the other two disciplines? So is it personally, do you notice that you are so much weaker as a swimmer than you are as a cyclist or a runner? Or are you comparing it to your competition? Okay, as in, if you were to look at the stats from your age group and there was 100 people racing in the swim, you were 70th out of 100. On the bike, you were 20th out of 100. And on the run, you were 10th out of 100. And so therefore, in comparison, your swimming is significantly weaker than your biking and running compared to you, compared to your uh, um, peers. So those two are quite important. So let's let's um, address the first one. Um, if it's weaker than the other two, the first question I'd ask is, why is it weaker? I mean, don't you like swimming? Uh, there's a lot of triathletes who choose to do a triathlon, but try to do it with the minimum of swimming. So it might be that you just don't like getting in the pool. Maybe you don't like getting your hair wet. Maybe you don't like getting your head underwater. Maybe you just don't like going into public pools. Um, maybe it's difficult for you to get to a public pool. Maybe they don't, um, they're not accessible during the hours when you can swim, or maybe on the times you can swim, there's just too many people. So you don't get any meaningful training. Maybe there's no clubs near you. Okay. So that might be one thing. Um, Maybe it's weaker because you started late. A lot of triathletes are new to swimming, so they didn't do much at school. And so they, they can maybe do a bit of breaststroke or they can maybe do some freestyle, but it's awkward for them. And so, um, you know, it just feels like it's hard work every time you go. So I understand that. Um, maybe you just, I mean, I love swimming, but maybe you're just not like me. Maybe you find people like me a little weird um, and you'd rather be out getting fresh air maybe you don't like the smell of chlorine or the it may makes you um maybe it makes your skin itchy i don't know but but um you have to ask yourself why it's weaker um and then think about the amount of time you're going to have to put uh, think about the amount of time you've got available to spend actually doing all of your training and how much training you're going to need to put in to improve your swimming versus the improvement you're going to get Okay, so you might get to be two or three minutes quicker on a, you know, 750 meter swim. But if you spent that same amount of time um, doing more cycling, maybe it would gain you five or 10 minutes. Uh, I, I think it's also important to think about whether it fits into your life. You know, I talked about convenience of getting to the pool. If, if it's going to take you an extra half hour driving to go to the pool in order to get faster, maybe you just that's just not convenient for you at the moment. Or maybe you're going to have to get up at five o'clock um, to go to the pool to swim at a time with other people or when it when it's um, when you get the opportunity to actually do some decent uh, laps. So there's a whole lot of stuff there um, about this weakest event now. Answer those questions and decide whether it's going to be worth your effort. Maybe if you go and see a coach, now going back to the very first question I answered about having a coach, in this particular instance, you want to go and see a swim coach. You want to get them to video you. If you can already swim, get them to video you, get them to outline why you're not swimming as fast as you think you are. There's probably some fundamental technical flaws that you've got. A lot of them are to do with mobility and tightness and therefore creating drag in the pool. So maybe you can uh, um, maybe you can improve some of these by just doing more stretching at home. 
Um, but a coach will tell you what you can do. And so that might be a good starting point there because you can invest your money like that. And then with, with some very specific changes, that would help. Uh, the, the next question is, um, were you comparing yourself to your competition? Okay, so who are you comparing it to? Uh, a friend of mine was uh, an age group athlete and he wanted to go from swimming 25 minutes per 1500 meters, which is still pretty quick, but he, he wanted to be able to come out with the people who were leading his age group. Now, the people who were leading his age group for a 1500 meter swim were swimming around 20 minutes. Right, that's a five minute gap. That's a lot of that's a lot of swim speed to make up. Um, five minutes is 300 seconds. Right, I think that's probably. Uh, sorry, if I'm doing um, 300 seconds, it's probably um, 20 seconds per 100 meters. That's right, it's 1500 meters. Yeah, 20 seconds per 100 meters. That's that's an awful lot of time to speed up. But also. He'd started swimming when he was in his 40s. The people he was racing against had been swimming since they were children. And they were swimming in a program when they were teenagers. So they were good swimmers. They've got the physiology, they've got the technique, and they've got that just that confidence in the water that you don't get when you start as an adult. So he was, uh, to be quite frank, he was never going to make up that time on them. He might have made up a couple of minutes, but he was never going to get down to 20 minutes. So his best approach would have been to do what he could and to make that time up on the, the bike and the run. So when you're comparing against those people, yeah, look at why are they so strong? What's their background? What are their technical skills? What opportunity do they have to swim? Maybe, they, maybe they're swimming four times a week and you're only doing two. So, um, you know, unless you can swim four, you're not going to be able to, to pick up on those people either. Um, so again, uh, it was an open-ended question. Uh, it was an it-depends answer. I think if you ask yourself some of those questions I've asked, it will give you um, an opportunity to decide. Um, I definitely think the best time of year to concentrate on your weakest discipline is in the winter. Hopefully you've made some gains and you've brought it closer up to the other two, and then you can balance it out during the summer and then go back to it during the winter again. Okay, another great question. That's five we've had today. Thank you so much. Appreciate you writing in with these questions. If you'd like me to answer your question on a future podcast, please write them in uh, to me and I'll do my best. We'll have to collect a few first so it won't be the week after you've written it in, but we will acknowledge the fact that you've sent us the question. Send them to Beth at the triathloncoach.com and then maybe we'll do another one of these episodes where I'm answering um, some more triathlon questions and if you've got any questions about anything I've spoken about today, if you want to take issue with anything I've said and have a debate about that, I'd be great as well. Maybe we can have a podcast debating that. Um, so, you know, I'm just, I'm just one avenue of advice. There's lots out there and it's great to have different opinions. So please don't think that my way is the best way. Uh, it's absolutely not. It's just the way I've found over the years. Um, is is one of the best approaches, but I appreciate that other coaches will have different approaches to mine. And that rhymes, doesn't it? Quite nicely, coaches with different approaches. Um, and that's fine. You know, that's what that's what life's about. Um, finding the uh, finding the approach that works for you. Thank you for listening. Uh, I really appreciate you being here. As 
always, as I say, I love to share this information and hope that you'll benefit from too. So, so thank you for taking the time. And if you've uh, got to this point, I appreciate your patience. I mentioned a lot of other podcasts that we've talked, uh, where we've talked to experts. There's other resources that link to those. So I'm going to put links to all of those in the uh, show notes below. To make sure you don't miss any episode in the future, please go to iTunes, search for the High Performance Human Triathlon Podcast and subscribe. And please don't forget that I have a free gift for anybody who signs up to my mailing list. So if you're not already on there, please look for the link in the show notes below. Or as I've said several times, please email the lovely Beth at the triathloncoach.com and she will take care of this for you. Right, that's all for now. I Please have a great week and I will see you on the next episode.